we do trust that uh, Pastor Bob um, gets stronger soon, and Sandy as well. And we are reminded as a congregation to lift up our pastor before the Lord. Uh, it's a very busy time of year for a pastor, Christmas time, but it's also that time of the year when uh, pastors also are prone to become weak and laid aside with the illnesses of the season. So we do trust that Pastor Bob will get better soon, but we also are thankful for the reminder to uphold him and his family in prayer. Well, let us turn this evening to John's Gospel in chapter 8. John chapter 8, reading verse 31 through to the end of the chapter. And we're going to be looking particularly at verse 56, but we cannot understand that verse without understanding much of what has gone on in this chapter. We'll read for the sake of time verses 31 through 59. Let us hear God's Word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears my words, the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him, I know Him. 
If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So reads God's holy word. Let us bow before God in prayer. Dear Lord, we pray that you will be with Dr. Trumper this evening in the word that he brings us. We pray that you will help him to enlighten us, to help us to know you better, and to guide him and bless him in all that he says. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the question before us this evening then is, how will we celebrate Christmas? And I want us to look especially then at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. I don't know about you, but I know from my own reading of the Scriptures that from time to time you come across verses which your eyes are prone to glide over. But from time to time, you are stopped in your tracks and you think about a verse and realize something of the richness of that verse and how profound is a verse that might otherwise be lost within the narrative or the discourse of the Scriptures. And for a long time now, it has occurred to me that this is one such verse where Jesus, speaking of Abraham who lived 2,000 years before, says categorically that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. He saw it and was glad. Now, if you think about that for a moment, that is utterly profound and the sort of thing that only Jesus could say. And I want to say by merely introducing this subject that there are two wonderful truths in this 56th verse of John 8. And the first has to do with the glory of Christ's person. For we read the narrative and we are reminded that Jesus is born in space, in history, and in time. And yet, as you make your way through the narrative, you are very conscious, if you read it closely, that there is so much more going on here than simply the locality of his own experience. And so, you can cast your eye back through the discourse, and you find the way in which Jesus speaks of the devil. And he speaks of him as if he has some insider information. Now, at one level, when you read in particular verse 44, you think that everything that he says about the devil could have been taken from the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. And yet, even as you read verse 44, you get the impression that Jesus has an authoritative understanding of the devil. And so, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. You don't speak with that level of authority if you have simply read somebody else's account. He has first-hand information about who the devil is and what the devil has been from the beginning. And the same then is true when we come to Jesus' references to Abraham as we do in verse 56. He is speaking explicitly of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what for him was the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, and yet he has insider information about Abraham. And so when your eye is cast down to verse 58, he makes this astonishing claim. Before Abraham was, I am. And so astonished are the Jews by what he says that they make this telling statement. 
This man is not even 50 years of age. Now, if you are aging beyond your years, this is highly consoling. That our Lord looked a lot older than he actually was, because he himself was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, even though in this verse he's talking about the joy that Abraham deduces from seeing in advance the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what do we have here? In this verse, we have an indication of the pre-existence of the Christ, that in the incarnation, He who was fully divine takes upon Himself full humanity given to Him by God, and therefore, having existed before Abraham was, He now, according to His humanity, exists after Abraham. The glory then of Christ's person. And surely this is one of the most thrilling aspects of the season that we call Christmas. I don't know about you, but the older I get, and Pastor Bob has spoken about this, the more I think during this season, not simply of what is in it for me at Christmas. But my mind goes more and more to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in His full divinity. Before Abraham was, I am. And yet, the one who is I am becomes incarnate in our human flesh. But also, by way of introduction, we see something of the glory of Christ's work. Because this text reminds us that Christ is front and center of human history. It is an amazing fact that we call history, history. And someone has rightly stated that history is really His story. He stands front and center within our human history. And if you have been to the museums as I have been to the museums, you will know that that very fact is very much under the judgment of the world as we find it today. And so you go to a museum. And what do you see? You no longer see B.C. You find B.C.E., before common era. And you no longer find A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. You find C.E., common era. And so they have rearranged the way in which we refer to the divisions of history so as to extract Jesus Christ from the front and center of history. And yet, when we come to this text tonight, Jesus goes right against the stream of history as we find it. And he says, I am the front and center of history. In the words of John Calvin, the luster or the glow of the incarnation shines backwards as well as forward. And so when Christ comes as God in the flesh, the glory of His person shines back upon the Old Testament as well as shining forward to us today. And we stand, when we look at Christ, at the center of history, seeking to see how Abraham understood the Lord Jesus Christ and how we may understand the Lord Jesus Christ looking back upon his life and upon his ministry. Surely this is one of the blessings of Bethlehem Alive and the advice that those of us who take part have before Bethlehem Alive begins. Now remember, Jesus has not yet been born. And I have to confess, I had to give one spoiler alert during my little piece as rabbi. Oh yes, Jesus has not yet been born yet. But you see what's happening. We're putting ourselves in the sandals of those who lived before the coming of the Christ, looking forward in faith to the one who was to come. But now we gather here together outside of Bethlehem alive as Christians of the new covenant era, looking back on the Christ who has come, and we own the fact that the luster of the incarnation shone back to Abraham on the one hand and shines here to us tonight on the other. Well, 
a little bit of background then about the text that is before us here in John 8 as we try to understand verse 56 in its context. And we notice in the background that although the text itself speaks about the gladness and the joy of Abraham, the context or background is remarkably ugly. Because here you have Jesus, who is the founder of Christianity, at least he's going to be on, go on to be the founder of Christianity by his death and by his resurrection. And he is faced with what has become an alternative religion, what we may for short call this evening Pharisaism. And he is evidently grieved by the way in which he is being harassed and pursued as regards his person and as regards his claims. And so he is beset by great hypocrisy. That's how the chapter begins in our Bibles. He's in the temple, and the scribes and Pharisees bring, not the man, the woman, to Jesus and say to Jesus, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now, it seems pretty clear that they are not so much concerned to vindicate the law of God, but rather they are concerned to allow for the humiliation of this woman so that Jesus can be caught out, so that he can be exposed as spurious, his authority undercut and undermined. And you can read then of how Jesus responds in verses 7 through 11. He writes with his finger on the ground. And some have thought that he's actually writing the sins of those who've come and accused this woman. And so one by one, they go off. And the woman is left with Jesus. And he simply says to her, go and sin no more. Now, he's not given her a free pass. What we are to assume from the text is that she is repentant of her adultery. And the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ is what encourages her to turn to God for forgiveness. But they, from the subsequent passage, are evidently impenitent, unrepentant. And so they continue to harass him around the temple precincts. And so there is great hypocrisy that Jesus faces here in the context. How easy it is to expose the sins of others. But what is too often found is that when we expose the sins of others, we ourselves are found guilty of the very same thing. You find this in the media, don't you, from time to time. Sometimes we find it in the church as well. So the question then for Jesus is not whether we have sinned, we have all sinned, but what have we done with our sin? Have we turned from our sin to God, believing in Him for forgiveness, or are we living in the sin? So this is part of the ugliness of the context, great hypocrisy, and then there's great arrogance. These Pharisees don't know what they don't know. And so the Pharisees pride themselves on knowing the law, and on that basis then they come and charge Jesus with being a liar in verses 12 and 13. Allow you to, or let you, permit you, or whatever the word is to read these verses for yourselves. And then we find from verse 21 onwards, he says he's going away, and they think they know what he's saying. And so they ask whether he's becoming suicidal. And then, thirdly, there is uh, Jesus' talk of freedom found in him. And then they remark concerning this freedom that he offers, that as the sons of Abraham, by blood, they are already spiritually free. They don't need freedom. They already have it. And so on it goes. And so when you think of Phariseeism, you think not only of the great hypocrisy that Jesus faced, you think also of the great arrogance that he faced. They think they know things as they are, and yet clearly they do not know what they could know. And then thirdly, there is the great accusation. 
assuming Jesus to be in error. They cannot level accusations at him quickly enough. And so we find that from verse 48 and onwards, are you a Samaritan? Now, that's not like asking me whether I'm Welsh. I hope it's not. They hate the Samaritans. They have a long-standing hatred of the Samaritans. And so when they say, are you a Samaritan? They are wondering whether he is a worthy object of their hate. And then they say, are you a Samaritan and have a demon? In other words, are you an agent of Satan? And so here are these accusations based upon knowledge that they don't have but should have. And so they turn, losing the argument that Jesus is presenting to them to personal abuse and ad hominem arguments to destroy his authority in the eyes of the people. We ask then, where comes this ire, this anger? And it is from the threat that a gospel of grace and of love brings to the brittle edifice of man-made religion and righteousness. So it is amid this onslaught that Jesus utters the remarkable statement of verse 56. And what is he doing? He is distinguishing between Phariseeism as one distorted religion and what we've now come to know as Christianity. I put it to you in this season that the one celebrates Christmas as a duty and the other celebrates Christmas as an adoration. Well, we see this difference by considering two things. First of all, the text in context, and then the text in content. Let's look at the first thing then, the text in context. We tend to think that it is the religious or the irreligious who miss the point of Jesus. And we think of the outreach in our own day. How are we going to reach the irreligious? How are we going to reach the unchurched? And that's a valuable question to ask. But when we come to the New Testament, the primary focus of evangelism, at least in the Gospels, is how to reach the churched, how to reach the religious. Because they have bought into this distorted form of religion, which was Judaism gone wrong, Judaism which should have found its climax and its terminus of hope in embracing Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and now rather embraces self-confidence and self-righteousness. So four things then that the Pharisees couldn't see. First, they couldn't see that by nature they were in bondage to sin, verses 33 through 35. The Pharisees err by focusing and relying on what they deemed to set them apart. After all, that's what their name means, the separated ones. They don't think about their separated status when they're dragging the woman into the temple, the woman caught in the act of adultery, but they are thinking about their separated status when it comes to interacting with Jesus and finding cause to dismiss Jesus so that they can keep the status quo. So what do we find in verses 33 through 35? We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Well, you see, because they are blinded by their own sin of self-righteousness, they cannot see that their supposed respectable sins are also a form of enslavement to sin. So we are free. How can you say we are not free? Jesus says, Anyone who sins is a slave of sin, and because of the privileges that you have had, being born and brought up in the ancient church, you need to know that if you remain in your bondage to sin, 
that there's coming a time when you are going to be put out unless you come to the freedom that is found in me. I want to say to us tonight then that we are Pharisees too if we have little time for Jesus and for the truth that he tells us about ourselves. We had a baptism this morning. It's always wonderful to see a baptism, a child coming into the visible church, coming into the covenant community of God's people. But we are at pains to stress that being a child of the covenant does not make somebody a child of God. And so I want to speak to the young people here tonight. I want to say to you, whatever you do, do not grow up saying, well, you see, I was baptized as an infant by Pastor Bob in years such and such. And so what is said in the Scriptures about sin is not relevant to me. The Bible addresses you at two levels. First of all, as a child of the covenant, and the privileges that you have that children born and brought up outside the church do not have. But with that privilege comes a weighty responsibility, and that is to hear the Word of God about the Word of Christ that you can be free from your sins. The Pharisees did not understand that. They so focused upon their privileges that they could not see their responsibility and their enslavement to sin. And secondly, they couldn't see that their external privileges were insufficient for a relationship to God, verses 39 through 41. Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. In other words, the works that the devil did. And so here they are. They have these wonderful, tremendous external privileges. But instead of using the privileges to embrace Christ as Messiah, they are using the privileges to reject Him, using their privileges as the basis of their confidence with God. And Jesus does not deny the privileges but he says they are not there to be abused. And so I say to you, children, and those who have been baptized into the covenant community of God's people, but you are yet to make profession of faith, the privileges that you have as a member of the covenant community, as a baptized member of little farms, are not there to be abused. They are there to be used so that you might embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Do not go into life like these Pharisees and say, well, you see, I grew up in an Orthodox church, a sound church. Our pastor preached the gospel week in, week out. He expounded the Word of God. We had marvelous Sunday school teachers, marvelous youth leaders, and that's where my confidence lies. No, the very purpose of the privileges of the covenant that you have are so that you might embrace the responsibility of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and coming to faith in Him for your salvation. Because, let me say it again, to be a child of the covenant is not the same as being a child of God. The Pharisees didn't understand that, but I would have you tonight to understand that. And then thirdly, the Pharisees couldn't see that the knowledge of God is no substitute for knowing God personally. My mind goes back to school in Wales. And I grew up with a father who was a pastor who taught us in quiet times at home. And he used to tell us that we had the best Sunday school teachers in the county. And I believe him. And I had no idea how well I was taught the Bible 
until one embarrassing moment in public school to which I went. And the religious education teacher asked the question, where do you find in the Bible this account? Now, I had no idea, such was my naivety, that he was just hoping for Old Testament or New Testament. And so I put my hand up. It's in Matthew chapter 6. I believe it's verse so-and-so. And to my great embarrassment, the whole class burst out laughing. And the teacher was amazed. Now, I thank God for that education. I thank God for that education at home. I thank God for that education in the church. But it did not save me. And so here you have the Pharisees. They know the Torah. They know the Mishnah, the oral laws. They know the Talmud, the rabbinic interpretations. They know all the information that they need to know about the Messiah. But the problem is they know about God. They even talk about there is one God, even our Father. But they do not know Him personally. And it may be the case with you tonight. That you know sufficient information to know God. You may know the Bible cover to cover. You may be the top of your class in Sunday school. You may be the top of your class in school. But what does it profit you if you do not have a personal relationship with God? In fact, Jesus says to the Pharisees elsewhere, you will receive greater damnation. He was heavily burdened about those who had this massive deficit between what they knew about God and a personal knowledge of God. I learned this many years ago going to a conference. The conference was a Banner of Truth ministers' conference. It was held in the middle of England in a city called Leicester. And it was held in the Easter holidays. And the students had all gone away. And so we could live in their rooms. And some of the students here may understand the scenario. And I got the key to my room. I went into the room. And a girl had vacated the room for the holidays, but she had left her stuff on the wall. And I saw her timetable. Okay, this is the schedule for lectures day by day. I saw some photographs of a whole group of people having a whale of a time. I didn't know which one was her, but I thought, well, she obviously enjoys university. I saw a scarf on the wall with her favorite team. But the thought occurred to me that if I walked down the street and walked past her, I would have no idea who she is. I could tell you lots of things about her, but I did not know her personally. And I want to say to you tonight, if you have been baptized into the church, the sign and seal of the covenant has been placed upon you as it was placed upon these Pharisees. You can know all this stuff about God, but unless you know God personally, then it's not Christianity to which you belong. It's the religion of the Pharisees. And so fourthly, they couldn't see that to reject the word of Christ is to reject the gospel of God. Verse 43 and following. Jesus asked, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and the father lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. And so Jesus charges the Pharisees with not listening to what he's saying. And it is a solemn truth that week by week, we have the Word of God preached from the pulpit here. 
Some will listen to it online, I'm sure. Some will listen to it on CDs, I'm sure. But unless a person who has been baptized into the Christian church comes to repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ can say the same to you as was said to these Pharisees. Why do you not understand me? Why do you not listen to me? Because his logic is this. To reject the word of Christ is to reject the gospel of God. And so this is like Russian roulette. There is a massive responsibility that comes with hearing the Word of God. And the more we hear the Word of God, the more we are responsible for what we've heard. And so the more sermons we hear, the more Sunday school classes we hear, the more youth lessons we hear, the more our responsibility for responding to the Word of God climbs and climbs and climbs. And so we need then to peel back the facade of religiosity and ask ourselves, when all the trappings of Christianity are put to one side, are we dependent utterly upon the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, or are we not? We cannot, says Jesus, claim to be a Christian and at the same time reject the word of Christ. Well, we can, but we're in error. And so this is the text in context. And so now I want to come to the text in content. In verse 56, Jesus is telling the Pharisees of a better way forward. Three things may be said of the Christian faith. The first is that it is authoritative. And I'm looking at the first bit of verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Now, you see what Jesus is doing. The Pharisees are coming to him saying, listen, this is our authority. Abraham is our father, and you are claiming that God is your authority. And Jesus says, well, that's part of it, but because in the Scripture a truth is established by the mouth of two or three witnesses, watch what I am going to do. I am going to take Abraham as what you are claiming is the foundation of your authority, and I'm going to slide him across here and say to you that actually he is a foundational witness to my own claims. So that leaves me with two witnesses, and it leaves you with none. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Yes, Abraham, Jesus says, believed that I am the Messiah. So that leaves you in a very weak position as Pharisees to believe that your distorted form of religion is an authentic form of religion. It is not. Well, it may be an authentic form of religion, but it's not an authentic form of Christianity. And so Jesus is saying to them... You have no authority to kill me. According to the law, a person couldn't be put to death on the testimony of one witness. And so, not having Abraham as a witness, you do not have the requisite number of witnesses to put me to death. On the other hand, I have multiple witnesses to my claim to Messiahship. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So I am making an appeal to you tonight. If you are baptized into the church, 
but not a professing member of the church, to say that you have no authority to remain as somebody simply as a baptized member without going on to turn to God, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and come into full communicant membership of the church. And perhaps more specifically, I ought to say, into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Christian faith is ancient. Notice the second bit of verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. Remarkable statement. So Abraham, living about 2,000 years B.C., gets to see Jesus' day. Well, we may ask, well, how did he get to see Jesus' day? And there are various interpretations. But it was likely included in the promise of the great inheritance. And there are different elements of that promise. So there's the promise of the seed, the offspring. And we go to think of Isaac in particular. Then we think of the whole posterity coming out of Abraham. But when we come to Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul reminds us, that Moses did not speak about offsprings, plural, but offspring, singular, pointing to Christ. And so as he gets this promise of the great inheritance that focuses upon the seed, somehow in the seed he sees in faith the Lord Jesus Christ, the offspring that's going to come. And then there's another element, the seeds. The great number of descendants, as innumerable as the stars of the heaven or the sand of the seashore. A multitude of nations coming from him, which cannot then mean that all the blessing that's coming to Abraham is simply for his own people, but rather for the nations of the earth. And in fact, he's going to become heir of the world, states Romans 4, 13. And then in the sacrifice, in the immediacy of Abraham's day, he eventually receives the promised son. And is all the promise fulfilled in Isaac? No, it's not. And Abraham faces this tremendous trial of faith. Now, Abraham, I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice your son on Mount Moriah. And Abraham, in his weaker moments, is probably saying, are you nuts? I waited all this time to receive this son, and now you're telling me to go and sacrifice him? And so he goes three days' journey. He takes Isaac up Mount Moriah, and you know the story well. He straps him on the altar. He's just about to kill him. But God intervenes. But I'm thinking then of the conversation on the way up the mount. My father, we have the wood. We have the rope or whatever for the sacrifice. But where's the sacrifice itself? My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, Genesis 22, verse 8. So the Christian faith is authoritative. The Christian faith is ancient. And then, thirdly, the Christian faith is astonishing. Look at the last words of verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And I love this bit. And was glad. And so we think of Abraham going back 4,000 years, is it? And he looks forward in faith and he sees Jesus' day. He sees what we now see so much more clearly now that we have the New Testament, now that Christ has come. But what he sees is sufficient to have a psychological impact upon him. He sees his day and was glad. Well, why was he so glad? Well, he saw in faith the Savior. So moved was Abraham that God provided the ram caught in the thicket, that he renames Mount Moriah Yahweh Yireh. The Lord will provide. 
And he's looking forward in faith to that lamb who's going to come. And he says, Jesus says, because he saw my day, the day of the Lamb of God to be slain for the sins of the world, he was glad. And not only did he see in faith a Savior who was to come, but he sees in faith a great salvation. He saw that it was not by his own standing before God that salvation would come to him. And this is the point that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans 4, 5. In connection with Genesis 15, verse 6. That he believed in the Lord and the Lord accounted or reckoned his faith to him as righteousness. Not because there was something virtuous in his faith. But because of the one upon whom his faith rested. Namely the lamb who was to come. And was it by faith? Was it by works? Was it by a mixture of faith and works? No, it was solely by faith, through faith, relying upon the lamb. And what does Paul make, the point he makes? Well, this faith was reckoned to him before he was ever circumcised. So it's not as if he earned some brownie points because he was circumcised, and therefore, because he believed in the Lord, plus he got circumcised, therefore, righteousness was reckoned to his account. No. He believed in the promise of God, pertaining to the Savior, pertaining to the salvation. Faith resting on the promises of God. Righteousness was reckoned to his account. And then besides seeing in faith the Savior, seeing in faith the salvation, he also saw in faith the sand and the stars. Is this how we're going to celebrate Christmas this year? How much more reason have we than Abraham to rejoice and to be glad this season. We have so much more revelation. We have such a clearer picture of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, such a clearer picture of salvation, such a clearer picture of the promise given to Abraham being fulfilled. To think of the countless numbers tonight who are worshiping God through Jesus Christ in fulfillment of this promise given to Abraham. My mind goes to a hymn of K.A.M. Kelly, which we've sung in Britain. I don't know if you know it. Give me a sight, O Savior, of thy wondrous love to me, of the love that brought thee down to earth to die on Calvary. Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. So let me ask us tonight as we close. How will we celebrate Christmas? Will we celebrate it as a Pharisee would? Going through the ritual, going through the motions, fulfilling the duty, but not loving, not adoring, not understanding Christ, not listening to Christ not embracing Christ, but simply ticking it off the calendar as we close out 2018? Or will we celebrate it as those who are genuinely Christian, not simply members of the covenant community with the privileges of the community, being taught faithfully the Scriptures, having godly parents, people who pray for us, but as those who, when we hear the call on the Lord's day to turn to God, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we hear our parents pray for us, when we hear our Sunday school teachers speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, when we hear our leaders pray for people to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Are we so inclined to say, I will do that? Not that doing has any merit. 
I was asked recently to be involved in a pastoral case not connected with this congregation. And I turned up to the conversation expecting simply to communicate to a Christian believer. It was a rather awkward conversation. I'm sure that some of you have known this awkwardness, that you have something to say to a Christian that only a Christian would really understand. And when I got to the, the meeting, somebody who I suspected was not a believer was there, I thought, how am I going to communicate to this believer what only a believer will understand? How can I speak directly to this believer with somebody from outside the community listening in? And so I thought, well, let me not make a judgment. Let me just ask this person. This question, which is a wonderful question, I believe it was D. James, James Kennedy who formulated it. If you were to die today, God would ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And this was an answer I'd never heard before. And frankly, I was shocked. I have done nothing for which I have not deserved heaven. I looked at that person and thought, wow. That is an astonishing thing to say. But there are many people, if not saying it, thinking it. And the wonder of the gospel is this. That I can do nothing to inherit heaven. But Christ has done everything to inherit heaven for me. And so I put it to you tonight that there's a fundamental difference, and it comes out here in John 8, between being of the Pharisees and being of Christ. And I want tonight especially to think of those baptized into the church, but yet to make profession of faith. And to say to you, don't go out of 2018 belonging in the final analysis to the wrong faith. A faith that is placed in yourself and not in Jesus Christ. Well, may God bless these thoughts. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word and thank you for the joy that we can know with Abraham, rejoicing to see the day of Jesus Christ and to be glad. Father, thank you for the joy that we have in Christ. Thank you. For his perfect life reckoned to our account. Thank you, Father, for his atoning death. We give you all the praise, praying that you would follow your word with your blessing and that none baptized into the church may go out of this world without being in Christ. Pour out your spirit, we pray, upon the weekly preaching of the word we ask and bring countless numbers to faith in Christ, and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.